Right. In your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to cover the last five verses of that today. Romans 3, 27 through 31. If you're using a blue Bible, it's on page 1042. Next week, we will begin Romans 4. I'm not sure how far we're going to go into it yet, but I know we're starting with verse 1 next week, and um, I'm going to figure out how far we're going into it before next Sunday. How about that? All right, so Romans 3, 27 through 31. I haven't listened to Joe's message yet from last week, but I read through all of his notes. And I'm very familiar with this passage. I've preached on this passage that he preached on last week a number of times in a number of settings. In multiple countries, actually. Last week, Joe presented a turning point in the book of Romans. Y'all have heard me talk for months about how horrible mankind is, how awful we are, and how far short we have fallen from the glory of God and from His righteous and holy standard. Then last week, Joe shared very clearly that the way we are saved is by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that anyone can be saved. So what he shared last week goes against the grain of our normal human logic. It goes against the typical reasoning that we have in our own corrupt, sinful nature. It takes all glory away from man, and it gives all glory to God. So, some mind-blowing revelation, some stuff that goes against the grain of our natural thoughts. Today, in these last five verses of Romans 3, Paul's going to tie up three loose ends that he's anticipating the readers might have. Everything that I talk about today is connected at some level to what we covered last week and in some ways to what we covered in weeks prior to that. And so we've seen Paul do this before. He'll teach something, he'll say something, and then he'll bring up some objections that someone may have or some questions that someone may have, and he'll go ahead and respond to those. And Paul is brilliant at that. So today... We're going to see three things in these five verses. And I want to tell you the implications for these things and how they apply to our life, how they should cause us to live, are are really special and really important. In some ways they're basic, but in some ways the the depths of them are just just so much deeper than, than we're accustomed to going. And so in this next hour... As we dig into it ourselves, as we discuss it, and as I preach it, I just pray that God would speak and tell you exactly what He wants to tell you. And I pray that you'll have eyes to see and ears to hear exactly what it is He's showing you and exactly what it is He's saying. Some awesome stuff. So, follow along with me as I read verses 27 through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? A law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith 
apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Take four or five minutes. Read this to yourself. You probably got time to read it ten times. That's what this time is for. Let God speak to you in that repetition, in that meditation. He's going to show you some things. And then you'll have the opportunity to share any observations and questions you have in the discussion afterwards. All right. Good, profitable, healthy discussion is a beautiful thing. So I told you there were three things that Paul wants to bring up that somebody might be thinking about and considering after what he just said in the previous verses. What becomes of our boasting? Who likes to boast? We, okay, there, there's yeah, maybe 40% of us are honest. <laughs> Truth is, I, I know some of you don't like to boast. But ingrained in our sinful nature of all mankind is this desire to have credit and glory for yourself. Now, we all show that in a lot of different ways. I, 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 and I was a, a very vain child. I, I remember thinking on days when I wore nice clothes that I was, you know, if I had the particular name brand or if I had this or that or whatever, then I could look down on other people who didn't have the particular really cool clothes that I had on that day. And, you know, some days I would dress nicer than others. And I can remember getting that pair of shoes that I really, really wanted. And as soon as I got that pair of shoes, in my 10-year-old, 15-year-old brain, I would look down on people who had shoes that was not as expensive or as nice as mine, even though I was wearing those exact same shoes last week. Boasting reveals itself in so many ways. Some people will boast because they have a nicer house than other people. Some people will boast because they have a better job or a better looking family or a prettier girlfriend than other people do. The human heart creates all kinds of reasons for boasting. And the Jews that were reading this letter They were no different. They boasted because God had spoken to them and done so many wonderful things for them and for their nation that he had not done for other nations. They boasted and relied on the law. They thought, you know, God gave us all these commands. We've got this temple. We've got this sacrificial system. God did great things for us in Egypt. He's done all this stuff. We're better than everyone else. And that was part of culture. Now, I want to say this, and I want to make this clear. That doesn't characterize every single Jew of all time. 
there were faithful, God-fearing Jews who knew that God was their Savior, that He was sending a Messiah, and that the Messiah was the one that was going to save and that they couldn't save themselves. There were true, faithful, believing people prior to Jesus' coming and even the Jews of this day. Well, the Jews of that day were all, you know, who, who had good faith were all converting to Christ and becoming Christians. But I, I don't want to paint the picture that all Jews were just arrogant people. Many Jews were faithfully waiting for their Savior and they knew they could not save themselves. But, but the more prominent ones in Jewish life, particularly the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they wanted to boast because of how they lived their life, because they were one of Abraham's descendants, because they got to hear so much of what God said in the Old Testament. And he's saying, no, you can't do that. It's excluded. You're saved by faith. And all this law following that you were doing to save yourself didn't get you anywhere. It just shows you how much you have offended God and violated His holiness and His command. And because you did that, it ain't going to save you. So as we go into verse 27, he says, by what kind of law? And this gets a little bit confusing here. When he says by what kind of law, is he talking about the Old Testament law that he, that, you know, he was just talking about in the previous breath? When he says law here, he's actually talking about a principle. And that's common. In the original language, the word translated law, it can be like the laws of nature. It can be like principles found throughout creation. So he's been talking about the law as in the Mosaic law and the commands of God. Well, here he says, by what principle is this true? Is it true by principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. And what's Paul saying there? He's just using that to, to say that it's boasting is excluded because of what I'm teaching you about faith. He said, you know, when he says the law of faith, really what he's talking about, I believe, is just basic teaching of justification by faith. You know, how does this work? By what kind of law? How does it work that you can't boast? It's because it's all by faith. And it's all by faith. So, two verses come to mind. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and verse 9. And these are verses that, that some of us love. And for many Christians, when they first become Christians, these are verses that someone shares with you very, very early in your faith. So, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Your salvation is not... What you did for yourself. No, it is the gift of God. It's not because of the works you did, verse 9 says, so that no one may boast. You see, if God did part of the work for you to get saved, and you did the other part of the work to get saved, you would be able to boast over the person who hasn't done the other part, right? Salvation is not you and God both doing something to work together, if it was, you would have a reason to boast. You would deserve some credit yourself. But salvation is all of God. We are dead in our sin. And the last part time I checked, a dead person can't do anything. We aren't just sick, but we are dead in our sin. 
We had nothing to offer, but God grants us the gift. I believe the word gift in verse uh, Ephesians 2.8 is specifically talking about faith. God grants us faith. He gives us new life. And that is when everything starts changing for us. So we can't even brag that we believed. Because even that faith is a gift of God. If you bring something to the table, then you can boast. And Paul's saying, no, you cannot do that. Do you remember the passage we read earlier in our service? It was 1 Corinthians 1. And I chose that. We, we read that several times a year. And, and, and that's intentional. I plan it that way. But I chose to do it today because it really speaks to the matter of what Paul's talking about. 1 Corinthians 1, it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose the weak. God chose what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, if we boast in the presence of God, then we are not boasting in God himself. First Corinthians one goes on to say, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who has become wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So I'm not telling you that you can't boast, but I'm telling you, you can't boast in yourself. You boast in God. One of the ways that I've started saying, doing this personally over many years now is I've told like anything you see in my life that is going good for me is all because of God. If God would not have, have inserted himself into my life, I would have absolutely nothing good going for me. In Galatians 6, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't tell people how great you are. Tell people how awesome and amazing your God is. We get to verse 29 and 30. And we've got this second line of thought. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Why is He bringing the Gentiles up again? He said this 15 times already, right? We're not even to the end of the third chapter. You know, I don't need to go through the basics of the differences again here. But I think he's saying this because of what was said in verse 22. Look back just a little bit into verse 22. It says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus for all who believe. All. Okay? There's that word all again. All types of people. Not every person, but every type of person. So every ethnic group Every nation in God's creation throughout history, this salvation has been offered to. He goes on to say at the end of verse 22, there's no distinction. All have sinned. Okay, Jew and Gentile have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, 
all types of people, both Jews, Gentiles, are justified by his grace as a gift. All types of people are, are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? So, you know, it doesn't matter what skin color you are. Don't matter what language you speak. Doesn't matter where you were born. Since there is only one God, there is only one way of salvation. And since there, God doesn't play favorites, He doesn't make one group work harder than the other group, right? You all, this propels us to missions. There are a, at least a few thousand language groups in our world today where no one in that language has ever believed the gospel. We need to go in there. We need to send people in there to become a part of that group, to learn their language, and to tell them that this salvation God has revealed to us is also offered to them. Since there is only one God, we can logically conclude that the nations do not have a different God, even if they think that their God is the real God. We get to verse 31, and this is where I'm going to spend most of my time today. This is the third loose end he wants to tie up. Have you ever, when you're reading the Bible, you come across a statement, what in the world does that mean? Now, I've taught you that when you, you see that, read before it, read after it, right? And, and that will always clue you in on to some things. But there's one phrase in verse 31 that, you know, yeah, the context reveals a little bit about what is meant. But the truth is, it's helpful to look in many areas of Scripture if we're going to understand what he meant. Verse 31 reads... Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So he asks this question. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? What are the readers thinking? What are they thinking about what Paul just said? Why is he bringing this up? I would imagine that they're saying something like, if righteousness comes from something other than the law, then we must not need it. It's not relevant. Or maybe we shouldn't obey it. Maybe we can just go and do whatever we want. You know, the Jews who are reading this, and there's Gentiles reading this too, but the Jews who are reading this put such an emphasis on the law for so long. And then in verse 21, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So they were counting on the law to do the wrong thing. They, they had this, many of them had a sick and twisted, inappropriate relationship with the law. They were expecting the law to get them to God. I mean, it would kind of be like me expecting my grandma's Toyota Prius to get my family to Florida last week. It's just not ever going to happen, right? So, 
when they realized that the law wasn't going to do what they were expecting it to do, then, you know, let's just take out the trash and be done with it. Why do we need to waste our time with this? That's the objection here that Paul's answering. Now, it's reasonable to think that some of the people who are reading this would be like, we can do whatever we want. I can just go and just have the best time I want to have, and God's okay with that. Paul addresses that idea in Romans chapter 6, and he says, no. (laughs) That is not right, has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But in verse 31, chapter 3, verse 31, he answers the question. And he says, no, we do not overthrow the law. We do not send it out with the trash. The law is still incredibly important. He says, on the contrary, instead of throwing it out, we actually uphold the law. What does that mean? And I got to be honest with you. I, I, I have seen that phrase here and in a few other places over many, many years. And I've kind of had an idea what it meant. But I, it was like a bunch of disconnected dots on the screen. Well, over the last few weeks as I've been digging into this, I think for the first time in my life I connected most of the dots. I'm never going to claim to connect all the dots. <laughs> just, just can't do it, right? But I connected more of them than I ever have before. What does it mean to uphold the law of God. You all, it is the responsibility of every believer in Christ to uphold the law of God. What it means is that the new covenant or faith in Christ brings the fullness of everything that we see in the law of God to fruition. It, you know, anyone ever here planted an orchard? I haven't. I hope to one day. Probably will. You, you go to a nursery and you put, get a tree, you take it home, you dig a hole, you put it in the ground. And depending on what kind of tree it is, it might be 10 years before you ever get fruit. Y'all, I kind of understand the Old Testament, the time of the Old Testament to be kind of like that before the fruit really came. They were waiting. Time was passing. The, the timeline and the story of God that he's writing on the earth is, is going on, right? Then all of a sudden, things start happening. Jesus comes. He dies. He rises again. He ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. And then the church just begins to grow. You all, the new covenant brings the fullness of everything we see in the Old Testament to fruition. It reveals the meaning. The new covenant, our faith in Christ, reveals the meaning, the true meaning of what we see in the law of God. Another way that I saw this in one of the commentaries I read, the new covenant allows the law to be seen in its proper light. You know, the Old Covenant had some strange things, right? Animal sacrifices. You know, you can eat this animal, but not that animal. 
You know, what does all that stuff mean? Well, now that Jesus has come, we have a greater understanding of what those things meant during that old covenant period. Let me give you some examples. You know, we saw circumcision come up in our passage, right? In the old covenant, circumcision was done to boys on their eighth day of life, and it was a physical sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. And it pointed to something else that was yet to be revealed. Romans 2 verse 29, it's real close to where you're at in your Bible. Romans 2 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Here, Paul is saying true circumcision, the thing that that awkward, strange surgery signified was what God does in your heart when you believe and he trims away that evil part of your heart and gives you a new heart. That's what Old Testament circumcision actually was preparing God's people for. It was a picture of how God has transformed our life in the here and now. So, have you ever wondered how the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected? I remember my first day of my New Testament survey class as a sophomore student in Bible college. I go into Old Testament survey. We're going to spend four months going over the Old Testament. And I went in there thinking, this is going to be a waste of time. The New Testament is what's important. And my professor, Frank DePronio, took the entire first two classes that we sat in to show me how wrong I was about that. You all, the Old Testament and New Testament are intimately connected, and we need them both. Okay, so what's another example of how the Old Testament law prepared God's people for the New Testament? Well, there was a priesthood, right, in the Old Testament. And they had nice, fancy uniforms. I don't know if anyone's ever shown you a picture of it before or not. And they also had animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. And if you've been a Christian for long, you've noticed that we don't do that here. Why is that? The truth is, we don't need those things anymore. Hebrews 8.3, it says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And then in Hebrews 8.5, it says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The Old Testament priesthood. And the animals that the people brought to bring forgiveness of sin served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. It pointed to the greater reality. It prepared us for the greater reality. You know, in the Old Testament priesthood, there was a high priest, right? Well, guess who has been high priest since Jesus died and rose again? Jesus has been. All of those Men who had a sinful nature just like we do, who served as high priests, were replaced by the man who did not have a sinful nature and who never broke God's law. And his name is Jesus. They were imperfect high priests, preparing us for the perfect high priest. Hebrews 10.1, 
It says, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. You know, I, I, I can, you know, if you meet me outside on a sunny day, you can look at my shadow and you can conclude that there's certain things that are true of me, right? But you couldn't conclude much. But when you look at me, you see so much more, don't you? The old covenant people of God only got to see a little bit of God's ways of working with his people. But it prepared them. It was like an appetizer. It prepared them for the fullness of what he's revealed to us at this time. Animal sacrifices and the priesthood pointed to Jesus, the true and final perfect sacrifice. And here's the cool thing about the priesthood part. Y'all, all those Old Testament priests, they had this really special access to God. Did you know that every single Christian has greater access to God than they did? Because he lives inside of us. You all, that's awesome. All right, so what does it mean that we uphold the law? So far we're seeing that the things that the Jews held on to were good and they had meaning, right? But now there's something better. Now there's fruit on the tree. Now we understand under the new covenant, we understand the old covenant law in its proper light. I want to talk about dietary laws for just a minute. There were laws that the Jews held tightly to when Jesus was alive and even after he was alive. And they're all found in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy. Don't eat shellfish, don't eat pork, but you can eat this and you can eat that. So what is that all about? Well, Colossians 2.16. You know what? Let me start with a different story. In Acts chapter 10... The, the, and we're gonna, I'm going to preach on this passage in a few months. In Acts chapter 10, you know, the, the, the gospel was leaving Jerusalem and it was going out to the non-Jewish people. And that was a fairly new thing. You know, we went through the first seven chapters of Acts uh, last year and we saw just some incredible faith rising up in Jerusalem and the church growing and getting big very, very quickly. Well, there came a point where that gospel message that the church had went outside of Jerusalem. Then a lot of non-Jewish people started to believe it. The Gentiles were beginning to believe it. And you know what? It took a little while for the apostles to get on board, even really important guys like Peter. He was slow to understanding, but God had to show him something. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter falls into a trance. He gets in like this dreamlike or vision-like state. And in this trance, God gives him a vision. And in the vision, he sees all types of animals. And God commands Peter in this vision, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And God says to him, this is uh, Acts uh, verse 10, 
I'm sorry, chapter 10. He, he says, what God has made clean, do not call common. There were clean foods and unclean foods. What did that point to? It pointed to the differences between the Jews and Gentiles. I guess I'm using the wrong language. What did that mean in the under the old covenant before the new covenant happened? It pointed to clean people and unclean people. And the clean Jews were not to associate with the unclean Jews. Well, God says here about the food, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter goes on later to say that God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see, the laws in the Old Testament about unclean foods were copies of realities that were yet to be revealed to the Jews. Just like there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, so there is no distinction in God's sight between lamb and pork. God declared that all food was now clean, and that was a sign that there were no clean nations and unclean nations, but that God was inviting all the nations, all the peoples into his family. The Gentiles were no longer unclean, but the promise that God gave to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed was being fulfilled. What does it mean we uphold the law? It means that we recognize what the law was pointing to. It means that we recognize the fruit on the tree that took so long to grow. It means that we recognize, hey, God has trimmed away the sin in my heart. And he's given me a new one. Now, when Paul says in verse 31, we uphold the law, really, he's teaching what Jesus taught. Jesus spoke about this long before Paul did. In Matthew five seventeen, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I've actually come to fulfill them. See, Jesus also was saying, we, we're, we're still people... Like, like, like everything that happened in the Old Testament, all those commands, they're still important today. And later on in Matthew chapter 5, and even in Matthew 6 and Matthew 7, right after Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them, he gives the true meaning of the commands. I'll give you a couple examples of that. One of the Ten Commandments says, do not commit adultery, right? When Jesus said, I want to tell you what that really means. That means that if... One of you guys sees a woman out there and you look at her with lust and you even just start considering or entertaining the idea of thinking about adultery with her through by lusting at her. Then you've broken the command even if you've never touched her. You know, the, uh, the Ten Commandments say, do not murder. Well, you know, it would be easy to conclude that that just means I can't shoot somebody. But Jesus upheld the law by showing its true meaning. And what Jesus said is that if you are even have sinful anger in your heart towards someone, then you've murdered them. 
That is just as sinful as ending someone's life. He goes on to say if you insult them or call them a name, that is the equivalent of breaking God's command to not murder. So Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. Paul says, as Christians, we uphold the law. How do we uphold the law? We do that by taking, not, by taking the law at its actual intended meaning. Not just trying to force the literal meaning on it and trying to make a whole bunch of rules so that we can do this, but not do that. And what do I mean by that? I mean to say that the Jews in this day took those laws and they, they, they made a bunch of other laws from them. You know, for example, on the Sabbath, you could walk this far, but not that far. They tried to interpret the law. They became legalistic. They, they burdened the people down with lots of commands. When the truth is that the literalness of these laws was not important. The heart of the law is what mattered. So Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. You know, another way we see this is in Matthew 7, 12. Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. How do we uphold the law? You all, we treat other people the way we would like to be treated. Amen. Now, and I... I can't, and I talk about this all the time. I can't stress that enough, especially if you have siblings. Treat your brother the way you want to be treated. Treat your sister the way you want to be treated. It is so important. And that's what the law of God commands. And, you know, later on, you know, there were a lot of people that asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he always answered the question the same way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So on those commands, love God, love your neighbor, depend all the law. How do we uphold the law today? Not by getting rid of it. Not by acting like we can do whatever we want to. Not by making a bunch of nitpicky rules and getting super critical of everybody around us. But by loving God, loving our neighbor, and doing what he has clearly commanded us to do. So what I want us to do with all this, several things. I want you to recognize the beauty of God's plan throughout history. You all, God is writing a story. And this is just my opinion. Feel free to disagree with me. I think we live... I think we were born in the most privileged time period that we could have possibly been born into. You know, what God has revealed to us is so much better than, than, than what was ever revealed to anyone before Jesus came. So I can't think of a better time to be in this world. I also want you to recognize the unity of the scriptures and that the Old Testament is rich and relevant for us today. Do not neglect the Old Testament. Thirdly, I want you to drink deep of the Holy Spirit. Why am I saying that? We'll get to this when we get to Romans 8. The only way that you can obey the law of God is in the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way that you can love God 
It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way you can love your neighbor or treat someone the way you want to be treated is in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're having a hard time getting your life in order, then you just need to go to God and say, God, I can't get it right. Give me your spirit and I will walk in him. And then you will have power to obey that you've never had before. Fourth. If you are ever tempted to think that you are all that because you're a Christian, I want you to stop. Boasting is excluded. Don't think you are better than anyone else. Anything you have going good for you is because of Christ. Fourth or fifth, I want you to repent of your good works. What do I mean by that? If you're doing the right thing for Jesus... Don't stop. Keep on. But if you're doing the right thing because you think that's what you have to do for God to accept you, I want you to repent of that. You're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And finally, what I want you to do, if you've never done this before, I want you to believe in Christ and I want you to be saved. There is no other way to be saved except by going to Jesus And saying, I can't save myself, but you died on the cross and you rose again because you love me. You love this world. And I need you. You are the perfect offering and sacrifice for all my sin. And I want you to save me, God. You all, that's what you got to do to be saved. That is the only way. To be right with God. If you've never done that before, I want you to come talk to me afterward. And I want you to pray what I just told you to pray. Ask God to save you because you can't save yourself and because Jesus offers his salvation to you. Let's pray to God.